This morning we're going to give great consideration to this robust imagery that our Savior gives in terms of hungering and thirsting. And I would like us to consider this morning, as we hear from Psalm 63, the language the psalmist uses as he speaks of his desire and longing for the Lord of hosts. Psalm 63. It's a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. O God, You are my God. Earnestly I seek You. My soul thirsts for You. My flesh faints for You. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. And so I have looked upon You in the sanctuary, beholding Your power and Your glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. And so I will bless you as long as I live. And in your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. My mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. Those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. What a picture this is the heart of worship, a hungering and thirsting for God Himself who is our righteousness. Now turning with me to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5 as we continue our way through uh, the blessings that Jesus pronounces on the citizens of heaven. He says here in Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. Let's go before the Lord in prayer and ask that He would open our eyes to understand what it is that our Savior means. Our gracious God and Father, we do thank You that You have given us Your Word inerrant and infallible to direct our hearts uh, to the One in whom is found the source of light and life. We pray that you would bless the reading, but especially the preaching of the word this morning, and so churn our hearts and break up the fallow ground, that we might delight in the grace that is showered on us through the Spirit of our Savior, in whose name we pray, amen. What's the greatest meal you have ever eaten? I'm not just talking about a really good meal or your favorite go-to comfort food here in Corvallis. I'm talking about uh, the greatest meal you have ever partaken. I'm talking about the, the meal that you have dreams about still to this day. That kind of meal to where if a, a time machine were invented before you even went back in time to kill Hitler, you would first go back to this particular meal to eat first. I can tell you my favorite, I still have a picture on my phone of this particular meal. June 7th, 2015, it was in Sioux Center, Iowa. I had just flown out to Dort College for our denomination's annual general assembly. I'd gone as an elder commissioner. 
And after the morning worship service that day, one of the local farmers had invited about half a dozen pastors uh, to come over to his house for lunch. And we thought, great, this, this works out nice, a free meal, but what we did not know was that everything had come from uh, the farm, the ground of this uh, particular family. The mashed potatoes and the corn, the gravy, even the steaks, slaughtered and butchered by the farmer himself. Steaks this thick. I, I got to tell you, it, it was, I was in tears. I think everybody around the table were talking about how awesome this particular meal was. And at the end of the meal, I was sad that it was over. The only thing I knew to do is I excused myself from the table. I went to the bathroom, I shut the door, and I laid down on the floor and went to sleep for about 20 minutes. The only thing about my body that hurt was my left arm, and that is when you know that you have eaten good. What is it that you truly hunger for? We know what it li- what is like to desire after earthly things, but what is it that satisfies you spiritually? What is it that you find yourself dreaming about and thinking about late at night? Where are your thoughts and your desires, your appetite, spiritually speaking? Where is it continually drawn? It might be food. It might be money. It might be power, fame, or notoriety. It might be quiet, solitude. Perhaps your soul might be drawn with an appetite towards vengeance. Or our Savior here pronounces a blessing here on those who hunger after a particular thing. The blessing is not pronounced upon those who hunger for any of these other things, be it earthly or otherwise, on earth, those things such as vengeance or power or money or sex. Our Savior here pronounces a blessing upon those who hunger for one thing above all, and that is righteousness. And here he promises a heavenly satisfaction for all who experience those type of hunger pains. We have to ask ourselves, what does it mean to hunger and thirst for righteousness? So I'd like us to consider this blessing that our Savior pronounces. Again, this is not a command. This is a blessing. It describes the spiritual state of those who are citizens of heaven. I'd like us to consider this particular blessing from three particular vantage points. First, I'd like us to consider the matter of hunger. Secondly, I'd like us to consider the matter of righteousness. And then finally, I'd like us to consider satisfaction with that righteousness. So hunger and satisfaction and righteousness. I think in one sense, it's hard to imagine hunger here in the West in the 21st century, particularly when it's so easy if you're hungry to go grab something to eat 24 hours a day. You know, compared to even the history of the U.S. 100 years ago, how different it was during the Great Depression. You read of the Dust Bowl or the long bread lines, not just in the U.S., but the bread lines for days under uh, the Soviet Empire. Uh, perhaps we do not know what true earthly hunger really is. But I think we know enough to recognize that one's appetite does give shape and direction to one's own actions. Our appetites so order our steps. That type of 
hunger where you have such a hankering for something in particular that you feel like unless you have this one particular thing, you will die. David himself uses such imagery in the Psalms to speak of a particular type of longing he has for the Lord God. Psalm chapter 42, as the deer pants for flowing streams. You know, one of my favorite things to do during the week is, to, is to, to open up the back door to see my dog dart out and run up and down the hill. It's so funny, he's just 40 pounds of fluff. And yet you can still kind of hear the ground shaking beneath his feet as he gallops up and down, up and down. And it feels like he has just nothing but this giant ball of energy. And yet after five or six minutes, it's so funny to see him run up the steps onto the back porch and to jump up onto this giant metal tub that's full of rainwater. And he begins to lap up the water as if nothing else in life is important to him but giving his fill at that very moment. Right, this isn't your casual sipping on iced tea on the back porch in the middle of summer kind of drinking. There's a particular appetite that knows that unless this appetite is at some point filled and satisfied, you will die. I think many of us know what hunger pains feel like, at least to a small extent, and we think that doesn't feel good, but I'd like us to consider this. What would the alternative be? And one of the first things that you see with somebody who gets sick is a loss of what? It's a loss of appetite. And how dangerous it is when the body deceives you and tricks you into thinking that you actually don't need the very thing that your body needs. In this sense, I think we begin to recognize why it is a blessing in one sense to be hungry, to have that appetite for something. To have no appetite at all can actually be a signal of a deeper problem. Another problem happens is when you try to fill that appetite with the wrong things. Think of the child who right before dinner demands to have a snack and you keep telling him no. And what does he do? He goes to the pantry and pulls out a bag of Cheetos. And next thing you know, all the Cheetos are gone and his hands look like a neon orange tint to it. Like he's just been put into a radio, you know, a, a radio actor or something like that. Radio actor's not a word, by the way, I don't think. You know what I mean. But what happens when dinner comes just a few moments later? He's not hungry. He stuffed his belly with the wrong thing, and now he can't enjoy the homemade meal that his mother has cooked for him. He feels sick and disgusting, and also in one sense, there's a feeling of shame that he has traded in the greater joys for something not as good. Greatest Cheetos are not as good as a home-cooked meal. He's become bloated and lethargic. The manner in which he tries to feel himself is a problem, but also the object could be a problem. Uh, consider the grown man who has a peanut allergy, where if he eats a peanut, he will die. And one day he says, you know what? Forget it. I'm going to help myself to a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. What is that going to do? It's going to put him six feet under really quick. 
See, the very things that we hunger for are important, and our drives, our appetites will lead us to particular things that might be good or bad. And here, Jesus is speaking of the blessing of the one who has a properly ordered appetite, so to speak. One who is hungry. It's a blessing, though it might not feel like it, but he hungers for a particular item. He hungers for righteousness. We have to see here that Jesus is not pronouncing a blessing on the naturally hungry here. Again, this is not uh, you know, Jesus um, speaking as uh, a universal law of like you know, Newton's third law of motion. He's not simply saying blessed are the hungry. It's blessed are those who hunger for a particular thing. He's not saying here simply blessed are those who have a hankering for a McRib. There is a real spiritual hunger here. But though this hunger is spiritual, it is no less real. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Above all things, we're reminded in the Old Testament of Esau, the, the hungry man par excellence. Here is a man who has been given a heavenly inheritance, and what does he do? He trades in his inheritance for a cup of stew. His appetite has led him to the path of destruction. He hungered, but he did not hunger for righteousness. He hungered for earthly things. He hungered for the things of this earth more than the things of heaven. And so we see what kind of picture the word hunger and thirst here evokes. It's a sober reminder that that, that the human person, be it a man, a woman, or child, is not a robot. We are not simply purely rational beings that always approach the same issue objectively apart from our desires. We recognize, and Scripture recognizes, that our desires, our appetites, lead us in particular directions. They drive and influence so much of what we do more than we realize. You simply ask yourself, why is it so hard to go on a diet? I remember when I was in college, I worked the graveyard shift of a security company, and I would have night classes on one side of town, and I didn't have enough time to go home. So as soon as I got out of class, I'd drive to the other side of town and begin my work at 11 p.m. I'd work 11 p.m. to 7 a.m. Of course, since I couldn't bring my lunch with me, I had to purchase my meal for my lunch that I would have at 4 a.m., and the only thing on the way uh, close to work was Wendy's. And so every night at 10.45, I would stop at the local Wendy's and get myself a double cheeseburger so I could have my lunch at 4 a.m. You imagine what happens when you're sitting at a booth all night eating cheeseburgers at 4 o'clock in the morning. What this does to a man after about six months. When I go to the doctor and the doctor says, Charles, you're fat. You need to lose weight. You need to eat a salad. And so I said, okay. So I would go and I'd get a salad too. Why would I do that? You eat a salad, and you realize, why am I eating this? This is disgusting. Cheeseburger already comes with a salad. It has lettuce, tomato, and onions. Why would I get extra of the less important part of your favorite part of the meal? 
And that's the problem you have with diets is because as you're eating a salad, even though you might be doing the right thing, you're still hungering for something else. And guess what? Until you reorder your appetites, you're going to continue longing for that thing your doctor says you're not supposed to have to where eventually the diet plan fails and falls apart. Isn't that fascinating? That's exactly the, the imagery that Peter gives in 1 Peter chapter 2. It's what we had, why we had our reading of the law earlier. Isn't it fascinating that Peter does not simply say, drink the pure spiritual milk of the Word. Instead, what does he say? Long for the pure spiritual milk of the Word. Put away malice and envy and deceit, those disordered appetites, and now begin not only to drink the Word up, but to long for it. There's a calling for the reordering of our appetites. And until you do that, until you long for those proper things, any attempt at sanctification is doomed for failure. At that point, it becomes nothing more than behavior modification. As my old pastor in college would say, you have to starve your lusts, but also feed your loves. What we see here is there is a a, a blessing to a properly ordered hunger. On the one hand, it doesn't feel good to be hungry. And at the same time, how good it is that you have that. Again, better than the alternative of, of not hungering at all. That's the, that's, the, that's the picture of the sick man. But here we see Jesus describing what is happening to the life of the citizen of heaven. His appetites begin to be reordered in their proper direction. Blessed are those who actually do hunger and thirst for righteousness. As his appetites are reordered, they're being drawn away from spiritual junk food, so to speak. The envy and the malice and the anger and the lust. The desire for more. And as appetites begin to be reacclimated and reordered towards the things of heaven, he begins to feed on Christ. And the believer finds that his hunger for Christ is cultivated and developed there's this contradiction that takes place because the more he hungers for Christ, the more he is satisfied. And the more he is satisfied, the more that hunger grows for the one who is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. This is why Jesus continues to get at the heart of the matter in the Sermon on the Mount. Even a hypocrite can do the right things. But here Jesus is getting at something more central, that our appetites and our desires are a better indication of our spiritual estate than any outward act. We could convince everybody around us that we are doing the right thing, and inwardly our desires are so disordered, even if nobody recognizes it, it shows the true state of our spiritual condition. And once again, Jesus begins drawing our attention to what it is that the Spirit is doing in the life of the citizen of heaven. Our appetites are going to be drawn in either one or two directions, either towards the path of life or the path of death. This is what Paul says as he writes to the church of Philippi. He speaks of unbelievers in this way. He speaks of those whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, 
who have set their mind on earthly things. The unbeliever has an appetite for destruction. He's driven by a hunger for for the things that his heart longs for. Idolatrous things, covetousness, greed, sexual immorality, malice, envy, the list goes on and on and on. Yet for the citizen of earth, we have a different orientation as it were. We have a newly ordered appetite that continues to grow and grow and grow and grow. And so often, however, we find ourselves much like Edmund from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. You remember Edmund, right? For those of you who have not read the book, Edmund is a little boy. He has a brother and two sisters. And he goes to this magical land of Narnia. And he is deceived by the white witch who offers him Turkish delight. Children's candy. He says, you can have to your heart's delight and be satisfied on this delicious treat if only you betray those closest to you. What does he do? He betrays them. I think C.S. Lewis gives such an appropriate picture here of what sin is because it shows us that sin is a disordered appetite. I don't know if any of you have ever had Turkish Delight. It's one of the most disgusting things I've ever had in terms of candy. So anybody could call this a delicious thing, but perhaps that might be why he uses it. Because isn't that what sin is? It's something that promises so much and yet fails to deliver and at the same time you can't help but be to gorge yourself on more and more and more of it. How many of us treat those particular pet sins like Gollum's ring in Lord of the Rings? It is the thing that we both love and the thing that we hate. The thing that drives us and enslaves us and makes us less than what God has called us to be. What is it that you hunger for? Only you can answer that, but I think that's an important question you have to wrestle with. I encourage you to do at least throughout the rest of the week. It's a critical question. And perhaps we can maybe have the litmus test that the the diagnostic put this way. What is it that you think about at night? After you've done all your work for the day, after the kids are asleep, after your spouse is asleep, where do your thoughts at night naturally turn? Where is the gravitational pull? And that will give you a taste of the very thing that you hunger for. And it will show you the very thing that you need to be praying, because if it's not for righteousness, it's the very thing you should pray. Say, Lord, cause me to hunger for more of You. Wean me off of the things of this earth and cause me to long for that pure spiritual milk of the Word. Because again, our appetites drive us, they influence, they direct us in a particular path. And now we can see how hungry for righteousness is a good thing. Righteousness here, in one sense, being described and categorized as a life in conformity to God's will. Lord, I delight to do your will, the psalmist says in Psalm chapter 40. But it shows that I think it's not simply a longing to do the right thing. What we see here is a longing for God Himself. 
That's the very language that we saw in Psalm 63, wasn't it? As the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs for you, O God. The God who is alone righteous. The God who is, in fact, righteousness itself. The God whose character defines and describes and tells us what true righteousness really is. Here, what Jesus is bringing into view is personal communion with God. It is a delight to know the living God, to be satisfied with a righteousness that comes out of ourselves, that comes outside of ourselves, that is an, what we might call an alien righteousness. That's why it is so dangerous that Jesus continually uh, berates uh, and condemns the Pharisees. Because why? They are satisfied with their own righteousness. They're like cannibals or zombies who are consumed with gorging on themselves. It's a monstrous image. But they're satisfied with their own righteousness that they don't see that they are destroying themselves. Here, the blessed man is the man who recognizes that the righteousness that will truly satisfy is not a righteousness that arises from within himself. Here, the spiritual hunger is a blessing because it recognizes, as, and we see here the connection to the previous blessings. It is the man who recognizes that he is spiritually bankrupt. It is the man who mourns over his own sin. It is the man who longs for a righteousness that he himself cannot deliver. It is a righteousness that must come from without. Here is something that is more than a thirst for knowledge. Again, Jesus doesn't say, blessed are those who learn more facts about me. Rather, it's blessed are those who hunger and thirst. It is a longing and an appetite, not just for knowledge, but for a sense of fulfillment and completion. Here's the, the language of personal communion and fellowship with the living God. Here is a longing for God Himself. It is a hunger that arises in the midst of a holy dissatisfaction over one's own sin. Not just the consequences of our sin, but even the pleasures of sin, recognizing that the pleasures of sin are much like Turkish delight. They might be sweet, but compared to the feast that the Lord gives in communion with Him, they are in fact disgusting. And all they do is numb us to the pleasures of heaven. Here we find a hunger and thirst for God Himself, a God who is righteousness itself. David himself says, who do I have in heaven but you? There is nothing in heaven or on earth that I desire besides you. My heart, my flesh, my strength, those things fail. But God Himself is the strength of my heart and He is in fact my portion forever. That language of portion, uh, going back to the, to the language of inheritance. You, you might not have a, a plot of land to your name. You not, might, might not own a car. You might not have $2 in your bank account. But the Lord promises to those who hunger and thirst for the living God that God is your inheritance. He is your treasure. That's why Jesus will say halfway through the Sermon on the Mount to seek those things that are above. That where your heart is, there your treasure will be also. Jesus is calling for us. Now actually is describing for us, I should say, what the that where the, the treasure of the citizen of heaven lies. It lies in the Lord God alone. God is our inheritance. 
See what begins to emerge here is a picture of true repentance and a lively faith, a poverty of spirit, a godly sorrow, a hungering for an alien righteousness. These are all characterizing a picture of what true repentance is, recognizing that we, what we have to offer is insufficient, but God in his goodness and grace gives what we cannot supply for ourselves. This can only happen by a work of the Spirit in our heart. Ecclesiastes tells us that God has placed eternity in man's heart. God has implanted a God-shaped hole in the heart of every man, woman, and child, as it were. And we find that our hearts are restless till we find rest in the Lord God alone. That's why G.K. Chesterton would say that every man who knocks on the door of every brothel, he's, he's seeking for something that he hopes would satisfy but never can. Because that ultimate satisfaction cannot be found in the carnal delights of sin. It is a satisfaction that only God can fill. And here is the promise the Lord promises that He will, in fact, fill it for those who long for it. For those who come to the Lord and seek not to fill that satisfaction with those earthly things, but long for something that God gives and gives freely to all who turn to Him. Among the host of mankind that continues to gorge itself on its own sin and are made and are made spiritually lethargic, numb to the true meal that satisfies. Uh, uh, among the true, uh, uh, I'm sorry, among the multitude of men and women who would rather remain satisfied with their own righteousness, Jesus gives a different blessing. He says, "Stop, as it were, longing for the things of earth. Stop being satisfied with yourself, because the citizen of heaven." begins to long for something more. He begins to hunger for the true righteousness that God alone can satisfy. And Jesus promises that those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will not remain hungry forever, but rather He will come to quench their thirst and fill the hungry with good things. It leads us to our final point that satisfaction here is found in communion with the living God. It is a longing for the righteousness of God. It is longing for God Himself. As we heard in Psalm 63 earlier, where the psalmist says, my soul will be satisfied not with rich food. He says, my soul will be satisfied as with rich food. The satisfaction we have from having those great earthly meals is a picture of the type of satisfaction that God gives, only it is greater and David says, as a result, my mouth will praise with joyful lips. Psalm 107, the Lord alone satisfies the longing soul. And He fills the hungry with good things. Isn't it fascinating that this is the very psalm that Mary quotes when she sings her Magnificat? When the Lord comes, the angel of the Lord comes and promises that through her will come one who will bless the nations, the Messiah, the Son of God, the Son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ. And she says, oh, my soul magnifies the Lord and in Him will I boast for He fills the hungry with good things. A satisfaction that, is, that finds its completion in the work of Christ who comes to deal with the consequences of sin that we might be restored to communion with the Maker of heaven and earth. Jeremiah chapter 31, as the prophet speaks of the great blessing of the new covenant that will come through the work of the Messiah, Jeremiah says this, 
The Lord speaking through Jeremiah says, My people shall be satisfied with my goodness, declares the Lord. Here Jesus is pointing our attention back, saying that as He comes as the King of this heavenly kingdom, He comes to bring that satisfaction that the prophets had foretold of old. It's a goodness that is demonstrated at Pentecost as Christ, having ascended on high, pours His Spirit out on His church, calling the dead to life. Isaiah chapter 44, the Lord says, I will pour water on a thirsty land. I will pour out streams on the dry ground. I will pour out My Spirit upon your offspring and My blessing upon your descendants. That satisfaction is found as Christ gives us His Spirit Isaiah chapter 41, when the poor and the needy, once again, that image of spiritual poverty that Jesus began with this uh, series of beatitudes and blessings. When the poor and needy seek water and they find there is none and their tongue is parched with thirst. In other words, when the hungry and the poor are in fact thirsty. The Lord says, I will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open up rivers on the bare heights and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land I will turn into springs of water. I will put into the wilderness the cedar, the acacia, the myrtle, and the olive. The Lord will make your wilderness to look like Eden itself. I will set in the desert the cypress, the plain and the pine together that they may see and that they might know and consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this. that The Holy One of Israel has created it. The Lord comes to satisfy the longing of every soul through the work of Christ and the outpouring of the Spirit. And here we find a satisfaction that culminates in the resurrection from the dead. As David himself declares in Psalm chapter 17, he says, O Lord, when I awake from death, I will find my satisfaction in Your likeness. When I will see You face to face and enjoy unbroken and unfettered communion with the Maker of heaven and earth. See, this language here of eating and of drinking, of hungering and thirsting, is a picture of faith itself. When you read John chapter 6 and 7, Jesus continually returns to this imagery to speak of the intimate, personal nature of faith. Faith is not simply an ascent to abstract doctrines. It is a personal trust, a pressing into the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus comes to His own and says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to Me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in Me shall never thirst. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And whoever believes in me, just as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Jesus is the true manna from heaven. He is the true bread of life. He is the true water. So that all who hunger and thirst for this true bread and this true drink, the Lord promises will in fact be satisfied. That's what He tells the Samaritan woman. I come to give a water that will quench your thirst forever. The one says, where is this water I can find? To hunger and thirst for righteousness is to hunger and thirst for God Himself. And He gives it to us. And He's accomplished that giving and the sending of the Son. The outpouring of His Spirit. That we might enjoy communion with God in prayer. And it's the very thing that this meal commemorates. 
the Lord's Supper. As Jesus says, come to taste and see that the Lord is good. It's an experiential faith. It is a personal faith to come. I mean, it doesn't get much more personal than somebody coming and saying, eat me. And yet, that's what Jesus says here. This is what faith is. It's so intimate. It's so personal. It's almost off-putting. When we read John's Gospel, that's exactly what happens with so many of the people who follow Jesus. They're put off by this language. But this is how intimate the nature of faith truly is. That you are to be so identified with me, to abide in me, that it is as if you are feeding off of me. And yet Jesus says this is the thing that truly satisfies the longing soul. What is it that you hunger for? Perhaps we might put it more appropriately, for whom do you hunger? For whom do you long? The great news of the Gospel here we find this morning is that Christ has given Himself and He truly satisfies. More than the fleeting pleasures of sin, He comes to promise a life of satisfaction in Him to all who turn to Him in repentance and in faith. Let us pray. A gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do pray that You would bless this Word, that You would nourish our souls with Christ Himself, that as we meditate on Your Word, that we would feed on Christ, that even as we come to the Lord's table, we would feast on our Savior spiritually by the Spirit, that we might grow in conformity to the image of Christ in whose image we have been made and remade. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.